Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. You mentioned the Navy, for example, and that we have fewer ships than we did in 1916. Well, Governor, we also have fewer horses and bayonets because the nature of our military has changed. We have these things called aircraft carriers where planes land on them. Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prudeau from The Economist. This week, we're talking about debates. Debates don't always change the course of an election. In fact, they rarely do, but they've given us some incredibly memorable moments in American political history. From the Lincoln-Douglas debates to the televised brawls of this year's primaries, these showdowns are part of the fabric of our civic life. And they can be really fun to watch. For political junkies outside America, the debates are like Christmas come early. I've woken up at strange times of the night to watch them here in the UK, and I remember tuning in from Brazil when I was a reporter there. I know plenty of people around the world who'll be doing the same thing this time around. America's first presidential debate that was televised in 1960 set off a kind of debate envy elsewhere. France introduced them in 1974. Britain, which has come late to the game, doesn't have a presidential system, but it now does have televised debates between its party leaders. A series of three scheduled debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump begins next week. Both candidates have kept their preparations for these programs pretty close to the vest. This presidential cycle is already one of the strangest and most unpredictable we've ever seen. It's hard to say what will actually happen once these two candidates get on the same stage. But history tells us there's plenty going on behind the scenes. Joining us now is Judd Gregg. He served as governor of New Hampshire and also represented the Granite State in the United States Senate. He has a very unique perspective on how presidential debates are made. Senator, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So you know a little more than the average person or the average reporter about presidential debates. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Well, in 1996, I was asked to play Al Gore in preparation of Jack Kemp's uh, for Jack Kemp's debate, they were, he was running for vice president. Al Gore was vice president. Uh, that was a, a brief experience and that we only had one de- prep session. Then in 2000, I uh, was asked to do Al Gore again by then-Governor Bush and his people, and that was very intense. We probably had seven or eight, maybe nine sessions involving over several days each session. Uh, And then in uh, 2004, I was asked to do uh, John Kerry for then-President Bush. So on a number of instances, I've been the stand-in, so to say, for the candidate who's been running against the Republican candidate. Senator, how do you get inside the heads of the candidates you've played? Do you read their speeches? Do you watch their interviews? Or or do you do something else? No, it's a full indoctrination especially when I did it for Governor Bush. Uh, I started in April receiving documentation, receiving videos, receiving uh, audio, uh, and essentially I read everything, watched everything, uh, 
listened to everything that Al Gore said, not only leading up to that campaign, but in prior campaigns, his debates with Ross Perot, uh, his debate with Jack Kemp, uh, and just tried to totally immerse myself in what Al Gore was saying, how he was saying it, and how he would respond to questions as they were presented to him, and tried basically to follow a very uh, precise script of being Al Gore, not ad-living and being anything other than Al Gore, not trying to put my own spin on it, but just trying to know what Al Gore thought and said. Got to a point where I was listening to TV, had so many videos on, so many cassettes in the car that um, my wife got a little frustrated because every time she turned on the car radio or turned on the TV, there was Al Gore. Did it start to feel for her like she was living with Al Gore? I mean, did you feel like you were actually becoming this person? Did you start talking and walking and thinking like him? Well, when I did the debates, I tried to, but uh, not walking, but uh, certainly speaking uh, in his terminology. And uh, we would kid each other, my wife and I, Kathy, about how I was becoming Al Gore, but uh, that was just sort of family banter. But certainly as I did the debate prep, I tried to reflect exactly how Al Gore would address an issue and what he would say, how he would act physically. Will the candidates be preparing in the same way this time around? Or, Or does the fact that this election is so little about their positions on policy X or Y mean that that kind of preparation isn't going to be very useful? Well, I think that kind of, kind of preparation is always useful. I think it's important to know what your opponent, how your opponent phrases things, how he's, he or she says things, how he or she responds to issues stylistically, how like, your opponent is. For example, Al Gore was always on the offensive, never went on the defensive, always wanted to be on the offensive. And actually physical presence and the presentation of yourself in a physical way is almost as important as what you say. And numerous debates have been affected dramatically by what people have done physically as versus what they've said. So I do think it's important. Uh, My sense is that Hillary's probably doing that. Uh, I don't know who she's got playing uh, Trump. That's a pretty big challenge in and of itself. Uh, I don't sense, you know, Trump says he isn't doing it. I, I bet you he's doing more of it than he admits to. Uh, or that his people admit to, because they like to keep this image of spontaneity and that he's himself and he doesn't play by the rules that everybody else plays by. But I suspect he's done a few debate preps. So when you are in the room playing the opponent of of the candidate, I mean, does it become almost like a a war game? You're describing uh, having studied down to the letter the way somebody would respond to a question or how they would present themselves physically on the stage, you really get immersed in this sort of thing. What is it like to actually be facing off, say, against the president of the United States in that way? Well, your job is to make sure that the president or the governor hears exactly what Al Gore was going to say, what John Kerry was going to say, uh, so that they knew what they were going to be hearing before they heard it. It's not a war game. It's basically more like studying the opposing football team as a coach. Uh, you just have to know what they are going to say, what, how they're going to react to certain issues that are raised, how they're going to react to attacks on them, uh, and how they're going to attack you or attack your candidate. Uh, so it's very intense, and the key is to not get off script and start doing your own thing. Uh, you got to really try to stick very closely to what you think in this case, Al Gore uh, was going to say or Bob Kerry was going to say uh, and do on the offensive and on the defensive. If you were preparing for a debate against Hillary Clinton, what would you be looking to do? What kind of approach would she find difficult or uncomfortable, do you think? 
Well, obviously, there's all the ethics issues uh, and the fact that the issue of national security being put at risk for personal gain, the issue of how the Clinton Foundation was used, uh, basically, it appears in a, highly inappropriately. But I think you've got to go beyond, way beyond that. Uh, my view would be that I'd, I'd get ready for her to be ready to attack very aggressively. I think I, I know Hillary well. We served in the Senate together. Uh, she's very fact, effective. She's very smart. She's very quick. Uh, she's uh, going to see. She's going to go for certain openings, in my opinion. The number one opening she's going to go after because it's her number one message is to get Trump in some way denigrate women or or look like he's condescending to her because she's a woman. That's her theme. She's going to try to set Trump up with that. Who knows what Trump will do? But if I were preparing him, I would get him ready for that type of a counterattack or frontal attack from Hillary. And Senator, obviously, Donald Trump does very, very well with big campaign rallies and and that sort of thing. In the uh, debates, in the primaries, he was kind of quiet because there were so many people on the stage and he sort of let people uh, go at it with each other. And and he ended up being the last man standing. Uh, He's not going to be able to take that approach in a a one-on-one debate. So what do you think is his best hope of challenging Hillary Clinton? Well, I think it's the fact that he's carrying this portfolio of, uh, I'm not an insider. I'm not a traditional politician. I'm different and I'm a problem solver and I'm going to say and do what I think and I'm going to be original. And uh, that can either, that can cut both ways. I mean, he could really mess up or he could look very genuine and, and, ag- and aggressive and effective because people really are tired of politicians. And in this race, there's only one real politician and she's been around for, for 30 years. And so he's got a lot of openings on that issue. In the end, though, uh, debates really come down to a very simple message, very simple event. Uh, you're speaking to the American people, and in this case, this debate is going to be the most watched event in American, probably, television history, including the Super Bowls. And what you're trying to do, in my opinion, is communicate two things. One, that you're a reasonably likable individual, and both these candidates have very serious hurdles in that area because neither of them are well-liked. And so they've got to change, whoever comes out changing the likability equation, at least somewhat, is going to do very well. And secondly, you've got to deliver a message that you're a leader and that you're a leader that's going to take America in a positive direction. Americans are inherently optimistic and they want optimistic leaders. Whichever person makes the best strides on those two issues, being reasonably likable and carrying the leadership message as leading America in a positive direction, is going to win this debate and win the election, in my opinion. Senator Judd Gregg, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Jeremy Cliff covers British politics here at The Economist. Jeremy, if I remember rightly, Britain introduced prime ministerial debates or debates between the party leaders in 2010 in a sort of fit of envy. There were lots of politicos here who were a little envious that America got these very exciting TV debates and we didn't have anything like that in Britain. That's right. They began um, in the aftermath of a a great corruption scandal involving a lot of British MPs. And so the thinking was that perhaps a more personal, more kind of emotive election campaign would help re-engage people with politics. Um, And the result was uh, certainly it caught people's attention. Millions of people tuned in to watch the the first round of TV debates uh, with, uh, back then it was David Cameron versus Gordon Brown and Nick Clegg. 
Um, and they've become a staple of British political life, much as um, political incumbents don't like that fact. David Cameron very famously uh, fought tooth and claw to avoid having to do them uh, at the last election last year, but um, ended up uh, conceding. Jeremy, what are the expectations like going into these kinds of debates? Because here we have Donald Trump already talking about how the moderators and the media and everybody is sort of against him, and that's a way of lowering the bar. Well, it's interesting, I th- and I think this is this is very relevant, obviously, to what's uh, w- what's coming around the corner in the U.S. There the seems to have developed a pattern with Britain's TV debates. We've had them in 2010, in 2015 at general elections, and then of course we had some in the run-up to our referendum on EU membership back in June. And if, if there's a pattern, it's that the run-up to the debate is um, dominated by talk about uh, the incumbent or the the, the front runner somehow being uh, knocked off their podium by the uh, the spectacle. That that these are opportunities for um, the underdogs to fight back and to um, re-establish their uh, sort of e- equality of status with the front runner. Um, then you have the debate itself, in which quite often those predictions appear to be borne out. Uh, those who go in uh, perhaps with a bad reputation or with some ground to catch up uh, always look better in the light of that of those low expectations. Uh, and it's very easy, of course, for the front runner to seem complacent or to or to stumble or for some some chink in their armour to be exposed that wasn't um, obvious before. And, but then the third stage, which I think often people forget, is that often after these debates, um, it turns out that we were all looking at the wrong thing. Um, and while many of those of, of, of us, we, we commentators who watch these and say, well, so-and-so seemed eloquent or the other person seemed uh, to make good arguments, um, I think in the long term, the relevance of these debates tends to be in um, putting certain issues on the table. It seems to be less about the personality and less about more about the subjects that come up and whether they work for one side or the other. Um, so, for example, in the election last year, uh, looked like David Cameron was on the back foot for some of the TV debates, but he did ma- manage to spend a lot of time talking about uh, the scary prospect of the Labour Party doing a deal with the uh, pro-independence uh, Scottish uh, National Party. Now, now, in the long term, that was what mattered. It was th- that factor played a really big role in the election. And we didn't really notice it at the time. But the fact they were talking about it really worked in Cameron's favor. So it, it is curious, you know, you start thinking about these in terms of personalities. And obviously, that's going to be inevitably going to be the case with the presidential structure of the American election. Um, but often, it's, it's more kind of whose worldview um, gets more air to airplay uh, during these debates. So I'll be interested to see if that that plays out in the US too. And how about how the debates are moderated? I mean, in the run up to this election, as Celeste mentions, Donald Trump's tried to cast some doubt on the impartiality of the moderators, maybe trying to um, change expectations there. There's also been a debate about the degree to which it's the moderator's role to try and hold the candidates to account for any um, false statements they make or whether the moderator's there to just sort of referee a fight between the two candidates. I mean, how much in the British debates did the moderators have to to get involved and how much did they kind of stand back? Well, they had to play a pretty big role because most of the debates we've had so far have involved many more than two participants. Um, part of uh, the deal that whereby Cameron agreed to uh, take part in the election debates last year was that many other parties would be involved. It wouldn't just be a head-to-head between him and uh, Ed Miliband, who was then leading the Labour Party. And so he said, yeah, I'll do a debate, but it can't just involve Ed Miliband. It has to involve 
involved the leaders of the Liberal Democrats, the Green Party, the Scottish Nationalists, the Welsh Nationalists. And so there were moments during the, that, that debate in particular where it just uh, you, you, it was just a, a total um, babble of voices and, and the, uh, the moderators really had to exert themselves. And of course, there was a lot of uh, sort of controversy on Twitter as to whether they're being fairer to this person or that. Um, but where there was actually the most controversy here, it didn't have to do with the moderator. It was actually to do with the audience. Um, am I right in saying that the American debates have a live audience? It's not just the candidates and the moderators. That's right, yeah. Right, so in, in our case here in Britain, um, Nigel Farage, the leader of the UK Independent, Independence Party, a sort of, you might say, our, our answer to the, you know, the Trumpite movement in the US. And in fact, Farage has, Mr. Farage has turned up on stage, I think, with um, Donald Trump in Mississippi a few weeks ago. And he was, I mean, he really played the role of the Trump here. I think, you know, if anyone wants a preview of how these, of, of, of the sort of demeanor uh, Trump will exhibit uh, in the debates, um, do have a look on YouTube or look look up online some videos of, of, of Nigel Farage during the, the, the debates in Britain last year because he really played the outsider and he really invoked the idea of the you know the, the establishment stitch up the um, over cozy relationship between the producers and the and the establishment candidates and most controversially of all in the middle of the debate he turned against the audience and accused it of being packed with left wing um, liberal um, uh, enemies of his sort of politics and actually sort of reveled in, in in the fact that this obviously didn't make him any friends in the audience and you know he, he started talking about how um he said oh none of you here is going to like this and i'm going to say it all the same because no one's going to stop me and he went off on this awful diatribe about foreign aids um sufferers coming to the uk to seek free treatment um and it kind of really caught the, you know sucked the oxygen out of the rest of the debate um and played well to his base in the country um so i wouldn't be surprised to see something like that from donald trump it's interesting that you mentioned that because i was going to ask you about moments that really struck you as as turning points or sort of uh you know flashes of light in the debates that you've covered? Well, I, I come back to this point about um, certain issues being driven up the agenda by them. Um, and as I say, it's always very tempting to talk about, you know, how the individuals come across. You know, this has been the case in TV debates going right back to the famous uh, contest between JFK and Nixon and did Nixon look too sweaty and shifty? Um, and of course, those are going to play a role. And I think all the more so in a presidential system uh, like that of the US as opposed to the more parliamentary one that we have in Britain. Um, but I think that, I really do think that it, what matters is all also what they're discussing and whose uh, general view of the world it it plays into. And so I mentioned the example of... Um well, I've, I've, I mentioned the example of the TV debates uh, in Britain with the election last year. Um, one of the uh, one of the examples there was um, Ed Miliband being forced to talk about whether or not he would do a deal with the Scottish Nationalists. But exactly the same sort of thing happened with the Brexit debates earlier this year, when although um, we had there was a giant televised debate that took place at a big football stadium in London at Wembley uh, very shortly before the referendum, and actually the performances on behalf of the three uh, politicians making the case for staying in the EU were pretty strong and I think overall stronger than those on the other side. But the thing is, is that those on the other side were able to put various controversial claims that they had about what would happen if Britain would stay in the European Union to the Remain uh, defenders. And however eloquently they batted those away, enough time was spent on those subjects for them to be, for, for, for that to be one of the enduring memories, uh, I think, in many voters' minds. And so the, the, the example that most obviously springs to mind is that um, the uh, Brexiteers uh, said that Turkey is about to join the European Union and uh, sort of 70 million Muslims will have the right to move to Britain immediately. Now, this is obviously nonsense, but the 
the fact that they were able to sort of put it on the table and force the Remain uh, debaters to uh, comment on it and to talk about it, that that served a function. You know, it doesn't matter how well you bat these things away if, if, if just the fact of talking the, about them benefits your rivals. And I, if I were Hillary Clinton's team, I'd be genuinely worried that however well prepared she was to respond to some of the um, slightly more fanciful claims of the Trump campaign, that simply doing so too much and spending too much time on that during the debates could, whatever she has to say about them, work in Trump's favour. So, Jeremy, it's always hard to know really what's moved polls and what events during an election campaign have proved decisive. But as far as you think, you know, what have the impacts been like of of these debates? Have they actually changed the course of the elections or, you know, ultimately, is it kind of more noise? Honestly, I think slightly more the latter. I mean, obviously, they have an effect. Obviously, they get people talking. um, And you do see movements in the polls after immediately after these debates. Um, But I think if you look back to some of the expectations that were being raised um, in 2010, ahead of our first TV debates, you know, we were importing this uh, rather new form of electoral campaigning from the US. And there was some talk that it was going to absolutely fundamentally change election campaigns. And at the very start, that looked to be the case. Um, the first election debate, um, Nick Clegg, uh, the, then the Libra, leader of the Liberal Democrats, you know, this pretty small party that doesn't usually get much airtime, because he was put on a platform with the prime minister and the leader of the opposition, and because he just came across fairly well, he looked straight into the camera, he remembered the names of the people who asked the questions. Um, there was a brief surge of what was known in the media as Clegg mania. And the Liberal Democrat um, uh, numbers in the poll absolutely soared. And there was a lot of talk about how this, you know, this new format, this TV debate had transformed the political landscape, we were going to see some sort of Lib Dem landslide. And of course, lo and behold, on election day, no such landslide occurred. In fact, the party actually lost a few seats. Um, and, and that pattern has been has been repeated in other elections, you know, um, there were a couple of a couple of these debates or head to heads or Q&A type uh, TV uh, formats in the election last year, where Ed Miliband, previously seen as quite awkward, a bit weird, a bit uncomfortable, came across as a recognisable human being, um, which was obviously, which was relative to expectations, pretty good for him. Um, And actually, that did show up in the polls. It then turned out that the polls had been incorrect and that David Cameron had been leading all along. Again, I refer to the the Brexit debates. Um, Overall, I think those arguing in favour of Remain at these debates tended to come across better. They just were more on top of the arguments. They seemed more uh, together. And again, that didn't ultimately, uh, that wasn't borne out in the results. So yes, these things matter. But I think one really can overstate the role of, of, of TV debates as much fun as they are to watch. All right, Jeremy Cliff, thank you very much. That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were produced by Alan Habachak. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and at Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. And I'm John Prado at The Economist or at John Prado on Twitter. See you next week. <laughs>